The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, Son, and Spirit, you are indeed the God who is holy, holy, holy. One who was and who is and who is to come. And as we have had time to contemplate that through some of the songs, through the background of one of the hymns, you are God. And as we've contemplated that, Father, cause that to rest on us in a, a sobering and in a delighting way. You are God. You are awesome and and large, and magnificent, and huge, and you have indeed, in all of your godness, you've become man, so as to join us to what we only could dream of and never know, so as to bring us into communion with you. That is an awesome thing, which because you are God, you can accomplish. If you weren't, you couldn't, and we wouldn't. We would perish. You have done a marvelous thing, and we look at the cross and we behold in it the wisdom and the power of God. Power to save. We see in it mercy and grace. We see in it love. Lord, cause us to see you as God, God Almighty, and to fall down in worship and in thanksgiving before you. Thank you. Lord, thank you. We're your people here now, most of us. We are your people here gathered, your church, along with our guests today. And what our hope is, God Almighty, is that you would stoop again to teach and to guide and to change us. To move us towards you. To help us. Speak, Lord, in ways that we can understand. Would you cause your spirit to move through the room here now? And and if there is sin in the way that is a barrier between us and you, you, would you cause him to poke us and... Lead us to repentance and to turn away. If there's distraction here, Lord, would you cause him to to remove it? If there's disinterest, Lord, cause him to peek in us a sense of our need and a sense of the wonder of you and cause us to seek you with, with intent to find. Lord, we have before us a passage this morning, and I will talk about it, and I'll use the words that I have, but I pray that you would stand above me and beyond me, and you would take your words and move them into the hearts of each person here. Would you speak and would you teach? Would you guide? Would you change? Would you bless? To your honor, Father, Son, and Spirit, to your honor, I pray this. Amen. If I can get somebody to deal with the lights as however they're supposed to be. 
We turn our attention this morning to Revelation chapter 2 and the first of the so-called letters to the seven churches. And I, I say so-called because they aren't really letters to those churches only. They're letters to all of us. They're written to particular churches, and we are all to read them and all to learn from them. And so we, we've come here to Revelation this morning to read and to be transformed. Our hope is that as we learn what Christ says to the churches, that we'll, we'll see it and we'll apply it and we'll become more pleasing to him. That's what's brought us here. And we spent the first two weeks working through chapter 1, which is the introduction to the book as a whole and the introduction to these particular letters. And in chapter 1, the great themes of Revelation appear. The themes particularly of the, the sovereignty of God the Father and the sovereignty of God the Son. This is a very Trinitarian book. We have God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit all in this book all over the place. In chapter 1, we saw the sovereignty of the Father and of the Son, and in particular last week, we saw the Son emphasized. He is God in some amazing, amazing authority and power, and He is God who is here in our midst, right with us. We are to see that, to revel in it, and drawing strength from the fact that that God, God the Son, is here in our midst. To draw strength from that, we are to as verse 9 exhorted us to, to bear up amidst the tribulation. That's the call to the church. To bear up amidst trouble that's come to us because we are in this kingdom in the middle of another kingdom that's contrary. That's what we saw last week. And that brings us to our passage this morning, the beginning of chapter 2. It's where we are this morning. And it's possible that... If you were here last June, you might recall that we were actually here in this very same passage then. I preached this passage during the men's retreat weekend, in part because the men, there were 35 or 40 men or so from the church up at the retreat, and they were hearing material very similar to this, and so I wanted to kind of bring the rest of the church along with them. So I preached this passage at that point, and now we've come again to it in order, and I'm going to preach the same passage, but it'll be a slightly different sermon not totally different, it's the same verses, so it would be similar. But if you by chance remember it, I didn't when I went back and looked at the notes, <laughs> but if by chance you remember it, then great, you get to hear the similar stuff again, but God will speak again this morning. That's my prayer, is that God will speak again this morning through this passage and conform us, particularly along this point. Here's my main, my main point for this morning. This text is going to teach us that the glory of Christ shines into the world from a church characterized by truth and love. The glory of Christ shines into the world from a church that's characterized by truth and love. That's where we're going. It's the main point. We need to hear that this morning. This letter is written, as all of them are, to the angel of the church, in this case, the church in Ephesus. And, and before I read it, let me just make an observation. Though it's written to an angel, as we talked about last week, those angels are representative of the whole church. These are problems and, and, and things that are commended for the whole people of the church. So he's talking to the people of God, not just to an angel. This is his word to us. So let me read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Something that we all want, so we want to hear this. I'm going to make two observations from this passage this morning. Here's the first one. Christ is pleased when a church perseveres in the truth. Christ is pleased that when a church is concerned to, it, it, it takes care to honor Him by persevering in the truth. Or I, I could say by obeying the truth. Or perhaps by walking in accordance with the truth that is in the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. A little phrase that we saw twice in chapter 1, verses 2 and in verse 9. The Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. A church that holds to that, perseveres in it, and walks in that truth, very honoring Christ. That comes out in verses 2 and 3 and 6, so let me work towards that. He begins, as he begins all the letters with a command, tell this to the church. Write the words of him. And, and literally, that, is, that has an echo of the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord. Literally, it's this is what says the one and every letter picks out something different from the imagery that we saw back in chapter 1, picks out something different and takes it and applies it to the particular church that's receiving this letter. And it matters. In each context, there's something in that imagery in chapter 1 that matters for the church. Here, when he writes to Ephesus, he says, Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is the one who is in the midst of the church, among the lampstands, which represents the churches, and who holds in his right hand the stars, the angels, which again represent the churches. He is present and has authority. He holds in his right hand each church. Which is important to say to Ephesus, because Ephesus is the church of these seven. It's the mother church. Paul, when we read in the book of Acts, Paul went to Ephesus and stayed there for a long time and from Ephesus evangelized all of the surrounding region. These churches, they owe their existence to Ephesus and what the ministry of Paul there in Ephesus. So it's old. The church in Ephesus is prominent. It's significant. It holds pride of place. And perhaps because of that has a little bit of pride because of its place. 
And as we're going to see here, it's got a lot of, of good things going on, a lot, of, a lot of stuff that it knows. And so Christ expresses to them, you are not actually the mother church. You're not in charge, senior. I am. I hold all the churches you included in my hand and have the right to snuff out any church. Which is what he comes to, but we'll get there in a little bit. Before we get to the problem, first we're going to focus on the positives. Verse 2, he says, I know this. And in saying, I know, he's saying, I know, I'm aware of, and approve of. He has something commendable to say to this church. Something very positive. I know of, namely, your concern to persevere in the truth or to hold on faithfully to it. Their persevering nature is seen in their works. It is their way of life and in their toil. Verse 2, there's effort involved in something here that's not easy. And twice he says that they are enduring patiently. The same phrase from back in verse 9. Back where all of the church was called to endure patiently, to, to hold on to Christ, he commends Ephesus for doing this. In several different ways, they are bearing up, they are enduring, not growing weary. In a couple different ways, he's just talking about their attitude of, of resolve and determination to hold on to Christ and what he teaches and what he's about, which would have been hard for them if you think about what Ephesus was. Ephesus in this day was a massive city. One of the four largest cities in the whole Roman Empire. About a quarter of a million people lived there. It was huge. And in the middle of this massive city, there were all kinds of, of ideas that were in competition and in opposition to Christ and His truth. Namely, the, the biggest what would have had the biggest impact would have been the worship of the goddess Artemis. The great big temple in Ephesus to Artemis. The temple to Artemis in Ephesus was the largest building in the ancient world. Four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. Four times. Huge center for, we know, idolatry. Right in the middle of the city. A massive impact. This great big temple that had all of a community of, of 250,000 people all oriented towards worship at this temple of an idolatrous faith. It was the economic engine. It was the spiritual hub. And in addition to all that, we can read Acts 19 and realize there was on top of that all kinds of sorcery and magic and supernatural powers. The spiritual realm is alive, and it was alive and well in Ephesus. And in the midst of that, there's a church. Facing all of this, coming at it from the outside, all of it, and it's faithful. It's tenacious. It never grows weary. It never gives up. It's patient and long-suffering and holding on to Jesus and the truth. Faithful. And to just clarify something, faithfulness and tenaciously holding to the truth did not mean that they went down to the temple and picketed on the street corner, yelling at all the people coming into it. 
Now, surely they came in contact with non-Christians all around them. But what Jesus is commending them for is their tenacious holding on to the truth inside the church. Not going out there angry at people. Inside the church. When he says in verse 2, you cannot bear with those who are evil, he's talking about in the church. The rest of the sentence clarifies that because he contrasts it with Rather than bearing with the ones who are evil, instead, they carefully investigated them and exposed them as false. That's people coming to the church to teach, presenting themselves as apostles, it even says, as teachers coming to the church from the outside, perhaps some like these Nicolaitans. We don't know a whole lot about them other than that later uh, in verses uh, verse 15, for instance, they're talking about how they led people towards idolatry and sexual immorality. We don't know much about them, but they were obviously false teachers coming at the church. And if we read into Paul's warning in Ephesians in Acts 20, there would be teachers arising from within the church, wolves among the sheep. He's not talking about them opposing people out there. He's talking about them carefully opposing people in here. They have the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus delivered to them, and they hold on to it tenaciously, never growing weary. It is all so right and so good. This is high praise that he gives them. I know this. It's right. Way to go. I suppose that's nice to know about the church in Ephesus. If you care about such things. What's in that for us? Do you see? I mean, we're just a half step away from seeing. If he were to evaluate us, would he say similarly, I know, church, how concerned you are to be tenacious and holding on to the truth in the midst and examining those who teach, those who throw out opinions and exposing what is false. There, there's another half to this letter, obviously, where he's going to come in to, to criticize the church, and we need to hear that. But the first point is to see what he says is good and see in, in that, the, that first message to us, what pleases Christ is when a church has the truth and doesn't let go of it, but holds on to it tenaciously. He's very concerned about it. I say that to point it out to us, and I imagine that I'm engaged in a, in a little bit of preaching to the choir. Because I imagine a number of people here would say, yeah, okay, I, yes. Good. I, I'm glad you agree. But let me ask, is that us? Is it you? Does the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus control you? You can work into that. You can maybe examine your own heart a little bit as we look at the very next piece. I'm going to set that aside and hold my question. Is that you? Does the word of God and the testimony of Christ control you? I'm going to hold that there and come back. Because I want to move on to ask, how did they do this? 
Ephesus did it. How? Well, verse 3. They did this, enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake. Their persevering in the truth was driven by something. It was driven by a desire to honor Christ. For my name's sake, he says. They realize that when they have this this deposit of truth, that what's really at stake here is the honor of Christ in them, in the church, as the word of God is heard and held to and then lived out, and then the honor of Christ out there in the world as Christians who are changed by this word go out there and influence people. Christ's honor is at stake, and that being so of such great importance to them, they said, we will not grow weary, we will bear with this opposition, we will hold to it. That was how they did this. So, I come back to the question about you. Another way you could ask, is the word of God, is the truth of God controlling me, is you could ask, for whose sake am I living? Have you rewritten the sentence, I bear up and do not grow weary for my own sake? Or is it still read for Christ's sake? I would suggest to you that a whole bunch of us give mental assent to everything I've said and are wondering why I'm going on. But when it comes right down to living, you bear with the truth of God as long as there is clear benefit, but very often deviate and live for your own sake. Is that you? Well, look through your life. Take a moment, look through your life and say, the last conflict I was in, why was I in it? For Christ's sake or for mine? The last fight I had with my spouse, with my parents. For my sake or for Christ's sake? The last time I snapped at a, at a neighbor or a coworker, was that for my sake or for Christ's sake? The last time I made a decision about how to spend my money or my time, my sake or Christ's sake? Run it through your life. Where do you come down? Because we all agreed, most of us here, everybody agrees with absolutely we've got to be about the truth of God, we've got to hold that tenaciously and not let the world come in and influence us. We've got to be about, yes, of course. I think that a lot of us actually don't live that. We agree with it, but we live pursuing an agenda that's frankly about ourselves. Is that you? May he lift himself up in front of you, such that when you come to the question of for my sake or for his sake, something would rise up and you would see, for the sake of this one, this chapter one, one. This this one who reigns, who is God Almighty, to whom all honor and all glory is due. 
when I live for my sake, I put, that is so out of whack. I can say this to you, but I, what I must plead with God for is that he would lift himself up in front of you, that he would just be this of great importance to you, so that living for his sake would be natural and would seem to be the only appropriate thing. To live for his sake, and therefore for his sake to, to surrender all of your life to his truth and to the testimony of Jesus. What do you want? I'm yours. God must do that in us. Brothers and sisters, fundamentally, this life is not about us. And there is something very basic here. For whom is life about? For whom? Everybody's going to say God. And very often we live me. Your benefit is not the issue here. It is not why Christ created you. It is not why he sustained your life to this moment. We are here for him and for his sake. And at some level, Christian, I plead with you to resolve that. And when it's inconvenient, to cling to it. And I plead with God to show you Himself almighty and awesome to reinforce that clinging to Him. To, to reinforce, to give some substance to the one that you're clinging to. I plead with Him for that. But I exhort you. This life, your life is for His sake. All of it. Every bit. And Christ is pleased when he sees a church that is concerned to honor him by holding fast to what he says and how he directs us. The first point. That's what he commends the church on. If you want to think more about this, it so happens that we have a free book to give you. Out there in the book, out there, I think on a table outside the doors. It's about the, the truth of God, the word of God, and the importance of living around it, centered on it. Pick it up on the way out, it's free. We, they were given to us for free, we're given away for free. Christ is pleased when a church lives holding on to the truth for his sake, even when it's not convenient even when it's hard. But he has more to say, and that moves us to the second observation. This is the negative portion of the letter. Christ is displeased when a church does not love. Christ is displeased when a church does not love. Which is why he has a sobering threat to deliver to this church. This old, prestigious, knowledgeable church. 
But we'll come to that. Verse 4, he says, But I have this against you. So, change of tone here. There's a, a problem. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So you tenaciously hold on to the word of God and, and the testimony of Christ. You hold to that, but you've let go of something else. Love. You used to be like that back in the beginning. It's, it's the first love, he says, but you don't have it anymore. And this is a huge pitfall, potentially fatal problem. Love in the church has grown cold. That's the obvious problem here, but let's kind of make sure we understand what we're talking about. When he talks about love, what does he mean? Are we talking about love for God or love for people? Well, it doesn't say. It doesn't clarify. Which, if you think about it for one more, one more turn, makes sense. Because how in the world can we separate love of God from love of people? John himself joins those two together in his, in his uh, first letter. You say you love the brothers and you don't love God. That's a problem there. They're supposed to go together. Jesus joined them together when he, he talked about the, the greatest commandment. They asked him, Lord, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, here is the greatest commandment. Here they are. And he gave two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. That's the greatest commandment. So they're joined together, so it makes some sense that we're talking about love, we're talking about love. Love of God and love of people, both. Well, what is, what is love? Well, 1 Corinthians 13 can give us some help on that. You might want to revisit that chapter. But essentially, when we're talking about love, we are talking about a feeling an affection, an emotion. That leads to, as it is real, it leads to attitudes and actions that seek to give godly blessing. But it's, it is rooted in here. And if you have only the latter, the actions without the attitudes, and you say that's fine, it, it's not fine. There's an affection that goes behind, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We, we have to be about the heart also, or we're hypocrites. So it means both. He's driving us to, calling us to both. A heart affection that then leads to action. And that feeling in there, it can grow cold, leaving just dutiful obedience, which is not honoring. It's not what he's after. That's the problem. And why is it wrong? It, it clearly is a huge problem in Christ's eyes. He says, verse 5, he calls them to repent, and if they don't, there will be serious consequences. He says, I will take away your lampstand. In other words, the lampstand is, is the stand on which the lamp would sit. I'm going to take away my support of you. I will not own you. I will not empower you. I will not lift you up. They probably will continue to gather, but they will be a club. They will not be a church with his spirit moving through them. It's a serious threat here, and he calls them to repent twice. This, this is of great importance. It's frighteningly serious about this. Why is he so concerned? 
Because of what a church is supposed to be and because of what God himself is. God himself is love. My my hope is that I can in some way speak right now that your mind would grab something given to you by God and you would see Him beautiful. God Himself is love. He is a lover of Himself and a lover of others. Our God is a glorious being who deeply delights in all that is perfect and pure and holy and right and excellent and praiseworthy. Because of who He is in His being, He loves and delights supremely in those things. And where does He see those things? In Himself. God has been in love with Himself forever and ever and ever. The Trinity, forever past, because God sees Himself perfectly reflected in in the Son, the Trinity has forever past been looking at itself, if you will, delighting, loving, relishing, rejoicing, Thrilled. God has spent forever looking at and and rejoicing in perfection Himself. He is supremely a lover of God. Vast, wide, long, high, deep, passionate desire for Himself. And then when He brings the Son into the creation, God has a vast, wide, long, high, deep passion to see that Son loved and to see honor poured upon Him because He is so perfect and so full and so right, glorious in all of His being. God Himself is so completely and fully bent for the sake of the name of Jesus. It is an awesome thing. God. God in love. Moved in here in His affections and and then acting to lift up Christ, but moved in here. And what should stun us is that this God who so deeply loves what is perfect and righteous and holy also loves people who are not. That is alarming. Alarming. The higher you lift up the fact that God loves God because He's God should make it all the more alarming that God loves people because we aren't. But the love of God is, is, is a billowing mountain of water that just rushes out of Him. It can't be contained. He even loves people. Amazing. Even people that He knows will have nothing to do with Him. 
forever and ever and ever. The Scripture says that when He judges such people, and to be clear, His love does not eliminate His justice, does not eliminate His judgment, He does judge. But it says that He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God, who executes justice on the wicked, mourns as He does so. In a profound way, He is concerned about those that He made in His image, all of them, twisted and fallen, but made in His image. He has concern for and love for and pours out common grace on all people. But in regards to His own, He loves us. Christian, He loves you uniquely. Oh, He loves you uniquely. And He has determined to graciously bless you forever and ever and ever by bringing you into communion with Him by a means completely of His own creation. By grace, not according to any works in us at all. This is the point of the cross. The cross that is a display of the love of God Christ loves the church and gave Himself for her, says Ephesians. He has come and He says to every single person, all who trust Me will find forgiveness. And those of you who had, you know what it is. He has loved you with an everlasting love. He is a lover of Himself. He is a lover of all people. And He is supremely a lover of those people that He looks at and sees them in Christ. Pure. May God deliver you into His love. And I mean that in two ways. If you're not a Christian, may God work on you to open your eyes to your need Woo you and draw you, grant you repentance. May He give that gift to you. But if you are a Christian, may He awaken you and draw you into this. He is a God of love who is extremely geeked about you. I I say that to say it a little differently because I'm using words that are like religious words. And I, I caution, he's not like a teenager. But God knows what it is to be madly in love. Madly in love with himself and madly in love with people who are in Christ. He's madly in love with you. It's who God is. A lover of himself and a lover of people. God supremely keeps His law to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. That is God. And what is the church to be? A lamp upon a stand shining that God out into the world. Into every dark place we carry forward this God of love. Not a God who has no wrath against sin, but a God who in love has provided a solution to the wrath against sin. 
we carry him out and shine him forth unless, of course, we aren't like that. And that's why Christ has a problem with a church that isn't a church of love. Because perhaps we shine out a distorted image, or perhaps we don't shine out at all. And that's not what Christ wants to do with the church. He says, if that's what you want to do, carry on, I'm leaving. I'll take my lampstand and go lift up somebody else and shine out of them. So there's two things there, what God is and what we are to be. And notice something very important from the text, that those two are related and that if you've got what God is and what we are to be, the first one is what empowers the second one. What God is is what empowers what we are to be. Verse 5 says, remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remembering is the key to becoming and doing what we are to become and do, a church that shines out the love of God. He's saying to the church, walk back with me, walk down memory lane with me. Let's go back. Remember that place of initial love. Come back with me to the point when all that I was and all that I was for you was grabbing you. When it first came home to you that God in love has moved in Christ to save you. And what flooded over you was a sense of deliverance and joy. Oh my God, you have saved me. Even me, you have saved me. Broken in your sin, realizing how unworthy you were and realizing how complete He had removed His sin and wrath off of you. His wrath off of you. Remember that. Do you remember? And Do you remember what it was like? Delighted and naturally then flowing out of you was a sense of relief and joy. Have you ever seen a brand new Christian? Have you? Have you maybe been a brand new Christian recently? There's something there that's so right and appropriate and so novel, so tragically. There's something in there that's, that's a, I can't believe this. What amazing grace. Have you heard? There's something that, that's right. Now, sometimes when I was a brand new Christian, I committed a half a dozen pretty serious mistakes in, in that. Burned some bridges. But there's something there that kind of is, is right as it comes out of you. And he's saying, come back with me and remember it. Something was real on you. Something was, was gripping and your, your heart was, was paradoxically full and light. You were full of some appreciation, some sense of the marveling of marveling at what God had done and it lifted you up and you were, you were floating in, in such release. Love had been poured onto you and it was running out of you. Were you there? Why aren't you? Why aren't you? 
Remember, go back. Brothers and sisters, the gospel, I talk about this, I I think, probably every week, in some way or another. But the gospel is given by God, yes, to save us, but also to sanctify us. And as we live very close to the truths of the gospel, just just a half step off of them and realize, I have no business sitting in among this people. I have no business being in this kingdom. I have no business communing with him, and yet I do. Huh. It has an effect on us. God the Spirit uses that to have an effect on us to turn us to live for His sake. Overcome by His goodness to us. We must live very close to our sin and very close to the gospel that removes our sin. It is a simple truth. But Christian, you were doomed And Christ died for you and changed your forever. It changed your forever. Forever. It changed you. And you're never going to be the same again. And He now holds you in every single trouble that you face in His hands. You are so completely, remarkably secure. I fight in my own mind. I fight to remember that. And I heard a little quote this week that gave me a little bit of ammunition in this fight. Somebody talking about Paul, the most burdened man ever in the church. And the most delightful. I thought those two things can go together. And they should go together in my life. Burdened, sure. Delightful, of course. What has He done for you? What has He made you to be different forever? You are a most blessed people. Conscious of that, remembering that, remembering what it was like back then, bringing that to the present, then he says, do the works you did at first. Walk in love. There's a hundred ways to apply that. So let me ask, are you looking at the people in your life, family members, neighbors, others here in the church perhaps, are you looking at them as a chance to, to give, that is, a chance to give to them godly blessing? Or are you looking at the other people around you as a chance to get? Or maybe as a barrier to getting? I was thinking about this, that I can make this very concrete. 
a few minutes, we're all going to get up. We're all going to walk out the doors. And this happens to me, so I know what happens to you. Your eyes going to catch on certain people. Maybe, maybe your, your eyes will catch. Maybe you just see the back of them. Are you going to make a judgment in your mind? I want to talk to that person because I'll enjoy it. Or, I don't want to talk to that person because this is going to get sticky. A chance to give, to bless that person, or a chance to look at it and say, what can I get? Can I, if I can get something, I'll go talk to him. If I can't get anything, I'm going to avoid him. Do you ever do that? The phone rings. You look at the caller ID. This is going to be trouble. I'll let the machine take that one. Or, oh, so-and-so, great, I'm going to enjoy this. And you answer. The individual, maybe the family, maybe the whole group of people, the whole community of people that frankly are, are going to present to you an opportunity to give, which is a euphemism for serve. There's going to be something I'm going to have to, to give away here, my time, maybe my money, maybe my energy. I'm looking at people as to what I can get from them. I'm going to avoid that. And talk to you who can feed me. I pick that way to apply it because I think, I think nobody here will object to me saying we are to be a people who live lives of love. Everybody will agree with that. But I think also that this is a large way that we fall down as a church, when it comes to what am I actually going to give so as to bless, give godly blessing to this other. Once I've identified that, that may well be the work of love in your life that you need to walk into. I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what that is. For me, it very often involves my time. That's the thing that's most precious to me, my time. But a walk of love will display rejection of self-focus and an embracing of God and other focus such that in my thoughts and my actions, I am a grace giver a blesser. I'm seeking then the glory of God and the good of others, living for His sake and for theirs, rather than seeking my own good, living for my sake. I said that slowly, so I hope it was clear. God has to do a work in us as a church, to show us Christ and grow in us a remembering of His goodness to us, a growing of love in us, and then I pray a desire and a willingness to give your life away. 
That's the kind of church that would glorify God. That's the church from which Christ shines out into a world of darkness and loss. A a church that has a people who say, this is the word of the Lord, and I will cling to it for His honor's sake, even if it doesn't meet my immediate needs. And I will take that in love to others. Christ shines in the church. It's committed and characterized by truth and love. Let me pray. Lord, I pray, I ask you will you shape us? I'm so thankful. And I pray that you would cause to descend on your children here a deep thankfulness. That you have saved us and removed off of us all guilt. There is no condemnation on us. The future is secure. The present is in your hand. And no matter what happens, it can be and should be well with our souls Cause to descend on your people a deep conviction of those truths. And open our eyes to the places where we say, yes, 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 we nod to that, but then we are, we're still holding on to our own lives over here with the other hand. Lord, open our eyes to that. Show it to us and graciously pry our fingers off of our lives. I don't know what each one here needs. I I don't know, but you do. And Father, I pray that you would have your way with your people. In kindness, lead us to repentance. Draw us into a place where we bask in your love and are, are keenly aware of it. Use that grace that grace that you've poured on us to change us in whatever way is needed. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for making a church. Thank you for being here in your church. Thank you for owning us. Thank you for not leaving us as orphans, but fathering us towards our good for your glory. For the sake of your name, I pray it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.